Hello and welcome to the fourth installment of The Vinyl Approach. My name is Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and I've been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. I use The Vinyl Approach to discuss specific things that have interested me about musicians and their records. Today we will talk about posthumous releases, those albums that record companies put out after one of their artists have died. Back in my college days, I once had a professor tell a class of Mark Twain enthusiasts that a huge trove of unpublished writings by Twain existed just sitting in his archives. To our expectant faces, the teacher assured us, don't get excited. Those papers have been gone through quite thoroughly. There is no unpublished Huckleberry Finn sitting in there. I often think of this reality check when record companies excitedly proclaim the release of unissued music by a deceased artist. In rock, these have been coming for decades. From the early 70s posthumous albums by Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison through Kurt Cobain and the notorious B.I.G. Prince is among the more high-profile artists to recently be subjected to the fate of having material released over which he has no control. Country music labels have put out material by Patsy Cline and Hank Williams after their early deaths. The jazz genre has issued numerous posthumous sets by Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, and more recently by Miles Davis. Whenever I think of the Miles box sets, I think of my friend Larry. Larry is a huge Miles Davis devotee, but he is dismissive of these after-death Miles releases. He insists, if the music was any good, they would have put it out right after it was recorded. He wants none of it. I am surprised by Larry's inflexibility, but his point is worth considering. Some of the new material that comes out after the death of a musician is undeniably great and is worthy of a wide audience, but some of it, even for the fan, seems unnecessary. For the record company, it's a different matter. These recordings sell. To a focused and usually small audience, yes, but they do sell. And especially now in this day of economic woes for the music industry, small sales are better than no sales. Band leader Artie Shaw is credited with saying, the best publicity agent is death. At the time, he was speaking of his recently deceased big band colleague, Glenn Miller, but the quote is timeless. The bigger the star, the more lucrative death becomes. The RCA pressing plants had difficulty keeping up with the demand for Elvis records immediately after the King's death. I have always found such sales stampedes irritating. If you really liked Elvis, why didn't you already own those records? The day after John Lennon's death, I was called by several radio colleagues wanting to borrow my Beatle albums to play for their on-air tributes. I asked if they were big Beatles fans. Oh yes, huge fans, they assured me. Good, I told them then play your own records on the air. It is not uncommon for the sudden death of a music star to push a single up the radio chart. It has been true with artists ranging from Johnny Ace's Pledging My Love in 1955 to Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay a decade later. In fact, as I record this podcast in February 2021, the recently murdered rapper Pop Smoke has a posthumous single called Hello, climbing the American Top 40 chart. A few performers are even able to score a second chart entry after they die, as with Jim Croce. But country star Jim Reeves was in a different league. 
For well over a decade following his 1964 death on a small plane, RCA Records charted 19 posthumous hits by the singer, methodically releasing singles from the huge amount of material that Reeves had left in their vaults. But Jim Reeves is an anomaly. And logistically, there are limits to what a record label can put out, since its well of unissued recordings eventually runs dry. This is especially true for younger performers, since they usually did not have enough time to record a great deal of music. There are exceptions, of course, but in the case of an artist like Janis Joplin, the cupboard is pretty bare when Columbia Records look to release unissued studio tracks by their late star. Sometimes there is a fairly large amount of material for a label to choose from. Elvis Presley may be the best example of a record company scouring its vaults for unreleased songs. After the initial post-mortem rush of Elvis sales died down, RCA began to issue box sets of previously unreleased alternate takes, a pattern which continues decades after the King's death. One such release is the four-CD box Close Up, which includes 66 of these new, or rather previously unknown, studio recordings. These are primarily alternate takes, plus unissued songs found in his movies. Some in this last category of soundtrack songs, I feel, could have been left in the vaults, but we can save that discussion for another time. The last of the four CDs in the close-up box set is a previously unissued live performance by Presley from San Antonio in 1972. The release of Elvis's Texas concert leads us to the next step in a record company's career path for its deceased artists. When the studio material runs dry for a label, as it finally must, the label often turns to the artist's live shows. Staying with Elvis as our example, RCA had not neglected taping Presley's 1970s concerts. Even while he was alive, RCA was releasing an inordinate amount of concert albums by Elvis. After his death in 1977, RCA felt that the pattern could be continued. And boy was it, and still is. The most recent box set of live material by Elvis came out in 2019. It's an 11 CD collection of performances from Las Vegas that document 11 nearly identical shows recorded during a single week in August 1969. Labels have frequently turned to live recordings with many of their gone too soon artists. Patsy Cline at the Cimarron Ballroom offers a unique look at the country legend. It's doubtful if this tape was ever meant for release, it's not especially well recorded for one thing, but it is interesting to hear Cline at a regular gig working the room. This 1961 recording is a bit unnerving, since on it Patsy gives a detailed account of surviving a car crash just weeks earlier. In fact, she is performing this show on crutches. She would not survive her next crash in a plane just two years later. Patsy Cline at the Cimarron Ballroom is interesting for a one-time listen, but it adds little to our appreciation of the singer's abilities. Not so with Sam Cooke at the Harlem Square Club. Cook was killed in 1964. This live date from the previous year was professionally recorded by RCA, but was not released since the label felt the performance to be too gritty for the singer's image as a pop star. What it gives to the listener today is an idea of what a live show by Sam Cooke was like, and gritty it was. This is an especially important posthumous release for an artist, as it seems to contradict RCA's earlier live album, Sam Cooke at the Copa, on which the singer is performing to a white audience at what is almost a cafe society gig. The Copa set is calm and polite. The Harlem Square show is exhilarating. 
This posthumous release adds a lot to the portrait of Cook as an artist. To a lesser extent, this same situation is applicable to Nat King Cole. Nat Cole died in 1965, and his last new recordings were released the following year. It was, again, a live album entitled Nat King Cole at the Sands. This Las Vegas show was professionally recorded by Capitol when Cole was very much the pop star, a singer fronting a large orchestra. This set was recorded in 1960, and the fact that Capitol did not release the tapes until after Cole's death says a lot about their lack of enthusiasm for the project. Even so, it was fresh material, so it came out. In spite of Capitol's initial reluctance to issue the recording, Nat King Cole at the Sands is an important set, a well-recorded club date of Cole with a hot band. Also, he sings several numbers here that appear on none of his studio releases. After this live set from Las Vegas was issued, Capitol's vaults were empty. The label regularly repackaged collections of Cole's best-known songs and biggest hits, reissue after reissue, for decades. But in rare instances, a recording by a major artist will surface from such an unlikely place that it seems unbelievable, such is the case with Nat King Cole. In the late 1990s, some completely unknown material surfaced. Recordings made from a September 1946 radio broadcast. These were live performances from a three-night stand by the King Cole Trio at Milwaukee, Wisconsin's Hotel LaSalle. 1946 was during the era before magnetic tape, so these broadcasts had to be recorded onto disc-cutting machines. Someone at radio station WEMP had the foresight to save these three nights of music, during the broadcasts. Milwaukee area physician John Dale Owen was a fan of music and had connections with the radio station. He was able to acquire the discs and eventually donated them to the University of Wisconsin archives. Capitol Records and the Cole Estate were contacted by the school. The label was impressed by the discs' surprisingly high fidelity for a radio broadcast from the 40s, so much so that they released a CD of material called Live at the Circle Room. Nat Cole's Sands record was valuable for providing a few unique songs at a high-profile Las Vegas gig, but the Circle Room recordings show Cole fronting his trio at a typical gig. The quality of the performance is very high. One of the best things is to hear Cole play so much piano. By the time of the Vegas recording in 1960, Nat had taken on the role of singer playing piano on only one selection. On the Milwaukee sets 14 years earlier, he never leaves the piano. Capitol Records issued these radio broadcasts in 1999 to wide acclaim. This performance is just one example of a valuable radio recording being released after an artist's death. From John Coltrane to Hank Williams, the list is long, but we'll save this specific discussion of radio recordings for another day. When record labels continue to search for fresh material by their departed artists, they are sometimes frustrated by a lack of live material to release, radio or otherwise. The company simply has no concert recordings to document the artist's stage performances. For very different reasons, both Nick Drake and Jimmy Rogers each have none. Nick Drake did very few live shows, and Jimmy Rogers lived in the age before record labels made concert recordings. It's surprising that a number of departed bands are also bereft of concert documentation. Buffalo Springfield, The Velvet Underground, and Celtic Frost are just three of many departed bands of legend who have almost no performance recordings. For each, a handful of low-fidelity audience tapes exist that no legitimate record company would consider releasing. 
And by the way, audience recordings of concerts will also be discussed on a later show. So what does a label do to keep loyal fans' money coming in when the studio well is dry and the live recordings have been released or don't exist at all? Simple. Re-release what is already out there. This is particularly easy if the performer has done well on the radio. Greatest Hits albums have always been a natural place to recycle material. Well, not always, I guess. The Greatest Hits album idea has its genesis in March of 1958 when the labels for both Johnny Mathis and Elvis Presley released hits packages within days of each other. Johnny's Greatest Hits on Columbia and Elvis's Golden Records on RCA. Such collections are useful for budget-minded fans and they usually make for a strong collection of radio hits. But even if the artist didn't have a large radio presence, there are other ways to market old recordings. Albums with titles like The Definitive, or The Anthology, Legacy, The Best Of, and The Essential. These can later be tweaked and sold as The Very Best Of and The Quintessential Collection. For some departed artists, the number of such repackaged releases far exceeds the number of the performer's original albums. This has been true for Selena and for country singer Keith Whitley, to name only two. A side note here, the Rolling Stones get the award for the largest number of collections issued by a still active band. A conservative count finds more than a dozen different greatest hits anthologies released by the Stones. Eventually, though, fans will have purchased all of the best ofs they need for an artist. Then what is a record label to do? Let technology lead the way. First, remaster the studio recordings for superior sound. Convince the fan that this is how the artist really wanted you to hear the music. After the remaster cycle has run its course, the company can release the mono mix of an album, stressing its superiority to the stereo version. Then release the mono mix on vinyl. Then release a box set of the artist's 7-inch singles with original picture sleeves. Then re-release the performer's entire album catalog on vinyl. Remastered, of course. All of this may sound cynical on my part. I don't mean for it to. I am a fan. I have purchased most of the previously unreleased recordings discussed today. And by doing so, I think I am able to tell when something is a legitimate addition to a deceased artist's canon, as with the Sam Cooke at the Harlem Square Club, or if it is simply a money grab. I hesitate to give my opinion about the examples of this latter category because it may be your favorite album, but I am convinced that there are many such releases. And as the shelves of the record companies become increasingly bare of worthwhile new recordings to release by fan favorites like Frank Sinatra and Jimi Hendrix, I am again reminded of my friend Larry and his edict that if it were any good, they would have put it out when it was recorded. While Larry's opinion can be debated, it's hard to argue with Tom Waits, who once said, Showbiz is the only place where you can make money after you're dead. Today has been a discussion of posthumous releases. We have only scratched the surface. There is a lot more to say about several topics touched on here. In fact, I began writing this show with the intent of talking about the unreleased material that still resides in the Beatle vaults, but I didn't quite get there. We'll discuss that topic another time. Promise. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. It's available on Amazon. Take care, and I'll see you next time when the topic will be the importance of names in music. See you then.